0: Our Lord Jesus Christ said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hangs all the laws and the prophets. And our response should be, Lord, have mercy upon us and write both these thy laws in our hearts, we beseech thee. should have it memorized and trained, and it should be a well oiled machine. Why? Because we're Anglicans. <laughs> <laughs> Reading of the commandments is ordinary, and it's the start of an ordinary Sunday. But yet it's so extraordinary and so significant. And that's why we should have communion every week. The catechism of the Catholic Church describes it as such. Jesus summed up man's duty towards God in this saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This immediately echoes the solemn call, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. God has loved us first The love of the one God is recalled in the first of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. The commandment then makes explicit the response of love that man is called to give to his God. That's the Roman Catholic Catechism. And the Apostle St. Paul reminds us of this. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. St. Uh, Paul says that. I believe it's in Romans, is it? Dr. Packer? Is it? Is it, is it in Romans that's from? I think so. I don't remember. now. I should have had the... I should have it cite. See, the one thing I got sloppy about is citations. And um, I don't have footnotes here. So whoever is in... Um, uh, a professor here can chastise me for it, for plagiarism. Your
1: chest just went
0: on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bach's Cantata 77 was composed for the 13th Sunday after Trinity, which coincides with the midpoint of the Trinity season in this year 1723. The lectionary for that Sunday is on the Good Samaritan passage in Luke's Gospel. So before jumping into the music discussion, let us just do a quick Bible study to ensure that we're all on the same page. And uh, I don't need to go into too much detail since we had have had a sermon series on Luke several years back, and I'm expecting everyone to remember all the details and hear the sarcasm there. All right. So, in Luke's Gospel, the Good Samaritan passage must be should be studied together with the rich young ruler passage. In both these two passages, the most dangerous thing and most common mistake is to read the text superficially and forget a context. Now, that sounds like for every single biblical text, right? I remember back in my youth, our Sunday school teacher um, uses a kind of methodology in which we start by summarizing each verse, then arrive at the summary of each paragraph based on the summary of each verse, and then arrive at the conclusion of the passage based on the summary of each paragraph. And I see some look here, go, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, we arrive at something that looks like this. Good Samaritan passage says, love your neighbor to obtain eternal life. Rich young ruler passage says, sell all your possessions to, To obtain eternal life. This turns out to be a kind of work faith teaching. That I'm afraid even the Roman church would not subscribe to. You see the problem here is context. Why did Jesus tell the parable in the first first place? And I'm going to be the um, preacher for a little bit here. So let us look at the... um, Good Samaritan passage here in uh, Luke chapter 10, 25 to 35. See, the dialogue here starts with the question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the red flag, it's marked in red, is in the word, what shall I do? As in, eternal life can be obtained by his venerable effort. Well, what the answer is? The two commandment that hangs all the laws of prophets. You see, from the teachers of the teacher of the laws' point of view, there's a big problem with the first law and the little word "all." Why? Because all is limitless, all is ceilingless. You can always love God more. There's always more you can do. So, recognizing the real impossibility of keeping the first commandment, he went to the second commandment asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? Really with the intention of having a boundary drawn for what the neighbor is, so that if I loved this group of people, I would have fulfilled and kept the second commandment. And Jesus went on to tell the parable that we all know so well. So really, the purpose of the Good Samaritan parable is not so much as to tell us how to be a good neighbor it's really telling the teacher of the law and us by extension that while the commandment to love god is infinitely deep the commandment to love other human created in the image of god is infinitely wide both of which are equally as unobtainable now scripture is not explicit about what happened to the teacher of the law, but it's likely he just walked away. Alright? So let's skip ahead. Rich young ruler. Luke 18, 18-27. The motif here is the same as the previous passage. The question is on, what must I do? Now this time, instead of pointing out the theological infinite depth and width of God's commandment, Jesus reached out to what is the dearest in the young man's heart and commands the impossible from there to sell all his wealth. Hearing that, he became very sad and probably just walked away. This is what I used to say a lot, and you can see the remnant of the baptism in me at the deeper level. If the pastor asked during the baptism... Would you sell all your possessions to follow Jesus? What would you do? I'll be the first one to jump right off the baptismal tank. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, the um, the implication is in there you have to have enough water. (laughs) No, right to the the milliliter. Um, You see, our salvation does not depend on how much charity and social work we do. The important, the, what's important in this passage is actually what happens next. Most people just stopped on. It is difficult for the wealth, for the wealthy, to enter the kingdom of God. What's happened, What's important is actually what happens next. When the bystander asks, who then can be saved? See, from the perspective of the disciples and followers, he, they must have noticed it twice. And twice that Jesus is really commanding the impossible and saying, no one can be saved. And the answer that Jesus gave in response is the key. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Our covenant with God is not dependent on charity and good works. Rather, our justification depends on our faith, on the faithfulness of Israel's Messiah to complete God's faithful work on the redemption on the cross. And yes, I throw that up because I was—I um, just started reading that big book. Tom Wright. Did I get it right, Dr. Packer? More or less. <laughs> 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 Not quite. <laughs> I, I I dug myself a hole in here. <laughs> All right. So, um, let us shift gears. Okay. Um, so on both occasions, Jesus was expecting a response of humility, a confession that God's standard is unachievable by man. He was expecting both individuals. To be on their knees and say, Lord, have mercy. These passages are really about how we are in dire need of God's mercy and redemptive grace, not what we need to do but or nor how we need to behave. Okay, so now let's shift gears to talk about music. Uh, um enough preaching here. I'm not a theologian. This is my two cents. But I think it fits very well here. Talk about music, but before we do that We need to take a couple of music detours I.e. music theory crash courses <laughs> And um, said it's almost like an annual event And every year sort of go run through The same set of concepts and ideas And I hope that it won't be too hard to grab um, After um, X number of times But I will go over all this Okay Um, okay, so what we have right here is a keyboard, okay? And on the keyboard, everyone knows that there are white keys. And there are black keys. Okay? That's fundamental, right? White keys and black keys. Now, you may ask, why would they have white and black keys and black keys placed in such a strange place? Why don't you have all white keys and make it simpler? Well, it's because white keys, we can call it your base notes, your fundamental thing, the basic thing and black keys are alternations or tweaking of the basic thing and what I mean is for example you have right here a D okay? I have here is a B. now if I want to put it up a notch pitch-wise a notch put it up a notch I would play the adjacent black note to its right B-sharp D-natural same thing if I want to knock, um, put it down a notch, I would be going to the adjacent black note to its left. B flat. So B, B sharp, B, B flat. Sounds like something. OK? Now, why is this important? Well, let's move on and say we start on C, and we play every single consecutive white note from C to C. And we all recognize that sound because we all watch the sound of music. Though the deer, the female deer, the female of the sun, me and name that I call myself, fought a long, long way to run. This sound is the sound of a major scale. And the major scale that starts and ends with, uh, with C is called C major scale. And if you construct a tune using this collection of pitch and centered on the note C, Said the tune is said to be in the key of C major. Alright? That's easy, right? Okay, so now not all music is in the key of C major, right? That would be very boring. Because you can have different keys. So let's say if you start and end with G. Doesn't sound quite right, huh? It's not that though the dear the female dear sound, because we need to tweak a note. Sharp. See, so I used a black note. Okay? So anything we play using this collection of notes will sound as though it's centered in, a, uh, in G. And this is called G major scale by the end. By, by the way. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Right here. Okay? So that's G major requires 1-sharp. Alright, it's time to bring this up, actually. Late in clicking. So, the same thing if we want to start and end with F. Doesn't sound quite right as well, because you need to do a tweaking. B-flat. Right? And anything built on... This set of collection is said to be in the key of F major Sound okay? Okay, so You see this uh, circle chart here, it looks like a clock And I'm not racing against it And I will be in there very shortly But this is not a clock that I race against Um, This is what we call a circle of fifth For for all the keys Uh, The bottom part is cut off, so uh, there's more in the bottom here It tells you that the key of C major but on the top, it requires no accidental typing, no black keys, no sharps, no flats If you move to clockwise, one click It is the key of G major and it requires one sharp That would be the F sharp Move one more to, move one more click, you arrive at D major And it requires two sharps F sharp and C sharp And you put A major is a key that requires three sharps Okay? And so on so forth And moving the other side is the same thing Counterclockwise, one notch, F major, one flat Two notches, B flat major, two flats So the more you move to counterclockwise The more flat notes it requires The more you move to the left side The more sharp note you require in order to construct a key Okay? So that's not hard too Now why am I saying all oh, this? What's significant right here? What's significant here is It's a big, it's a big mystery, it's a big revelation, it may shock everyone, is that this keyboard that we're so used to hearing it's actually all out of tune. Every single note is out of tune. Really. If we tune every single note perfectly, the keyboard can only play one key. Really. You have to tune the keyboard in key of C in order to play every single note perfectly in tune. I have to tune the, uh, the keyboard in the key of D. So in order to play every every single note um, in tune, okay, so that's called just temperament. And of course, convenience over complete beauty. Let's tune every single note out of tune, so that we have one convenient keyboard. Now the byproduct, of course, is every single note being out of tune. And also, if you if you really think about it, the This is D sharp. E, this is B flat. Now, what do you notice about D sharp and E flat? They're the same note. It's the same key on the same black key on your keyboard. Well, if you are to tune everything perfectly in tune, D sharp and E flat sound different. They're they're really two different sounding notes. Now, for that reason, sharp notes and flat, flat notes do sound different. And sharp keys and flat keys, the left side versus the right side of this clock, do have a different affect. Okay? They do have a different affect. So why some keys sounds more uplifting and some key sounds more subdued. One of the reasons why. And there are countless of, uh, of uh, other things to consider, but this is one of the many reasons why. Okay? So that's what's important right here Now, talk about the outer ring, not the inner ring Inner ring is simple Inner ring is a counterpart, it's a minor counterpart Major key is your happy key Minor key is your sad key Okay, love to play that to my kids Give them horror dreams But sad star up there Princi- same principle A minor Is like C major No sh- uh, sharps or flats Moving one click to counterclockwise Is a minor Q with one f- with one flat Moving one click ca- uh, clockwise Is a minor Q with one sharp That requires one sharp Alright okay. okay So we're okay here We're on to the next little detour It's called cadence Like um, like uh, literally sentences, Liter- lit- literally sentences. Um, we need punctuations. Most fundamentals ones are commas and periods, right? One to demarcate the end of a clause, and the other demarcate the end of the complete sentence. And there is this uh, kind of um, parallel in music in which there, there are cadences, half cadence to demarcate a half of a phrase and the authentic cadence to demarcate the complete phrase okay it's like the parallel to the period and the comma you've got the authentic and half cadence okay so here is a phrase that ends with a half cadence of course we've heard this before, it's Mozart Doesn't sound like the end, right? Does sound like you're in somewhere in the middle. Of course it's somewhere in the middle. That's a half cadence. okay? This is an authentic cadence. Hmm. Here's the end of a, of a phrase, right? Sounds like the end of a phrase. Sounds like it's the end. You can put a period on it and you won't be uh, marked down for fragments. Is that, is that what you call the remark Yeah, I think it's threatening sentence. Yeah. Okay, so I will stop here. Doesn't um, take a moment for questions. Um, take a moment for questions, and now just take a moment instead of the entire evening, in case there are something that we need to. Yes. can you
2: play the harpsichord
1: as well as the
0: piano. I can't play a harpsichord. I'm not a player. I'm an analyst. Just take a moment Okay, so we look good Okay, so Just in case we're all lost in this mist of um, In the midst of this crash course Because it's important to to know this So that you understand what I'm going to talk into Instead of being lost in the wilderness Of what he's talking about flaky, sharky, and all that stuff That happened once So I better make sure everyone knows it I have an understanding of what's going on here. Okay? So, so here's the um box cantata 77. a bird eye view word. So we're gonna look start on a high level first. It's a six movement piece, 13 to 15 minutes worth of performance time, not too long. Um, has an open chorus, there's two recitative and aria couplets, and there's um final chorale. So they're spaced out for you so that it's easier to see visually the structure there. Um, the opening chorus is the pronouncement of the commandments. The two couplets serve as the seeker's um, prayer and reflection. And the uh, congregation or the collective seeker's response expressed in our final chorale. Okay? So it's pronouncement, prayer and, pray and reflect, and that's my and then my um, final response for it. Okay, so we're going to look at these one at a time. Some were more, in, more interesting than others. Some will spend more time than than others. Okay, but we'll look through them one at a time. And hopefully, I don't have to beat the clock too much. Okay, so here's the text for our opening chorus. Okay, the choir sings the two greatest commandments. And it's not that. In Bach, there's no is because there's only so much stuff you can fit into our title here. Um, So the chorus, so the choir sings this. And there's also an instrumental chorale, which we will come back to in just a bit, okay? When discussing about this movement, there are two things that we can look at actually there's a third thing there's a lot of research going into numbers and number of measures and all that stuff I never believed in that I never believed that Bach did all the addition subtraction make sure his music fits in so many bars I just don't there are people who do I just don't so I'll just forget about it So, we'll just look at the thematic material first, the melodic aspect, and then we'll look into the structure and the, how and tonality, how different keys and things uh, fit together. Okay. So, in terms of thematic material, the chorale is predominantly based on the Lutheran chorale, which translates to, these are the Holy Ten Commandments. Not a German speaker, I'm not going to attempt it. Perhaps, uh, can you...
3: Does uh... that be Heilergern?
0: single Sing. okay so these are the holy Ten commandments that's the chorale tune in which this chorus is based on and how is it how is it based on well the first thing is the um actually I'll just play this tune first okay um box harmonization of this tune get a taste of what it's like. So this is the chorale tune that Bach used to um, arrive at the... Um, uh, for to, to make the melody and the female material for this chorus. He did it in two ways. One, the fugal subject, i.e. the line, the stuff that the choir sings, is the derivative of the chorale tune. Now you may not know you may not be able to hear how it's similar because it sounds different. But trust me, if you really tease it out, it's actually a derivative of that. And those who are mathematician, if you, if you take a derivative of something, it doesn't really necessarily look like where you started, right? Oh, Professor Barlow is not here. Otherwise, he would say yes. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And uh, integral is always harder than derivative, so you won't be able to find out why was it before? Unless you do a lot of work on it. Okay. So let's see if you can pick it. I doubt it, but let's see if you can pick it out. Not really obvious, right? But trust me, it is. Now the next thing is actually obvious. It's actually the chorale... the the original chorale tune in its original form being played in the upper part by the trumpets and lower part by the bass. See if you can hear this. You can hear this, right? Very obvious. And now here is the bass part. Okay. Yes, and I rigged the recording so that it brings out that part. Won't be able to hear like that in their face in the in the proper performance of it all. So what you really have here is the audience hearing the text, the greatest commandments, being sung by the choir, used in a tune that is a derivative of this Ten Commandments Chorale and also the Ten Commandment Chorale remember those are cradle Lutherans those, these are chorales that they sung since they are they're, they're uh, little kids and they will recognize that chorale tune and, the, and associate the text with the Ten Commandments so you have really a two layer narrative going on here um, being intricately worked in here, okay. It's amazing all this artwork, right? Okay. So, uh, where am I right here? Yes. And also worthy to remark, this technique of having the chorale tune being on the extreme high and extreme low instrumental parts have previously been employed by Bach and often viewed as his signature to represent the spears of God, the high. And the spirits of men that's slow, sort of like a separation between the holiness of God and sinfulness of men. And again, um, I haven't, I haven't do my due diligence to cite this. This is actually from a, um, I got this from a box scholar, a well-known box scholar. So I'll just leave it there. Okay. Now, moving onward to the structure and tonal discussion. Now, this one is a lot trickier, okay? And to make things easier, I create a chart. When I first started um, working on this, I uh, made um, audio clipping, recording clippings on, on where all the tonal transitions are, and then uh, put them together and record and see if you can hear all the tonal changes. But that's this proved to be too hard. So I'm just going to abandon that idea and just go by a chart and a graph that everyone can read, and just have to take my words for it. Okay? And Bach here is being very thoughtful about how the music is organized, how the tonal center progresses, and how the text interacts with the key. We can see that there are five phrases in the chorus. Number them off. One, two, three, four, five. Um... And just looking at the tonal progression, the overall motion is from the major shifting to a minor and towards the flat key area. You can see that, um, you can see that in the general thing. Now the true first section states the first half of the first commandment while uh, remaining very stable in the key of C major. It doesn't really go anywhere. It just states the first commandment, solid C, uh, C major. In the third section, Bach strategically introduced the second part of first commandment, which reads, And with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, at the point where the tonal center shifts to F major. And what's important about F major? It's a click to the flat side. Okay? And throughout section 4, the music continues to progress to the flat side and shifts actually down to the inner ring, the minor, um, the minor tonality, until the completion of the first commandment. Okay, um, This motion towards the minor and subdued flat key implies the weakness and the hopelessness of human flesh. And here we can see Bach expression of disparity between the high ideal involved in the love of God and the emphasis of hu- on human weakness. Sort of like when the teacher of the law realizes the problem with the little word, all. Right? Now, the second commandment is introduced in this fifth and final phrase of the movement. When the tonality suddenly moves from the key of C minor, the key of G major and you can hear even with a rigged tuning that this is a big contrast right so this and with everything tuned perfectly that was um, that contrast really brings out even more to the forefront Um, really this dark contrast can be Viewed as bringing out the distance between God and man, and by ending the movement in a major key, God, God uh, Bach presents a silver lining for the seeker at the pronouncement of the second commandment, just like the silver lining that the teacher of the law sees in the Good Samaritan passage. It's just a glimmer of hope. I can probably make this. Okay, it's that kind of image that Bach wants to paint here. So uh, we will listen to a complete movement Alright, it's not too too long But um, see if we can uh, We can uh, at least Feel the change So opening phrase key of C major So begin of second phrase, didn't really go anywhere. Stayed in key of C it's very stable. See if you can also hear the trump and the bass line at the same time. It's very tricky hearing actually. second phrase bridging to third phrase and starts to introduce the next key undestabilizing moving to F major this time where second part of first commandment comes in There's four. Really unstable here. Really going to different places. It's a completely different effect if you remember how it actually started. Um, wrapping up the fifth phrase and gradually moving towards G major. Don't know. Don't really know the major key yet. It's a major key ending. See, so, I don't know how many. How many of us can actually hear at least. How the music changes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's quite interesting. Now, let's move on to the first recitative aria couplets. And I can see that we're sort of fighting time here. Okay. Um, first couplet here is represents the seeker's response to the first commandment. Now, there's nothing really much that happens in the rest of the teeth, I'm just going to uh, breeze through it, other than to say it confirms the key, in the, key, uh, the key of C major. Now remember, we ended f- the first movement in G. And this rest of the teeth brings us back to where we started. Okay, where the entire cantata started in the key of C. Um, and that is all I'm going to say about this, there's not really much, okay. Uh, You can see that the text here um, harkens back, reference back to the first movement a bit, and with um, reference to heart and soul and mind, and also looks forward to uh, the Holy Spirit and uh, um, grace and kindness, other things involved there. Aria is um, when things get a little interesting. It's organized in a special kind of tripartite form, like three chunks. Okay, um, three chunks in which the last two chunk is the same, uses the same music. Now, it's not necessary cut and paste because Bach is not into the business of singing the same chorus uh, 50 times. Uh, it's too creative for that. Okay, so there are variations. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's um, but it's based on the same set of materials. So A, B prime, and D, and the, the tonality and the overall is more or less in the key of A minor. And they all, and it moves in the middle section to key of B minor, back to A minor. So at the beginning of the section A, section B prime. Uh, section B and Section B prime. So it's almost like an arc that you can see that Bach is trying to trying to paint right here. And of course, it's all tonal. Okay, it's an arc. Um, so it really sounds something like. And the, and the trick here, when we're, whenever we're listening to tonal changes, listen to the bass note. Okay? Let's hear how it's being performed. First, section A. End of section A. Section B. Section B, beginning of section B prime. You can hear that arc, arc-like structure. Okay. Now within the first section, we can also hear a local tonal ascent, going from A to C major to E minor. It's almost like Bach illustrating. Um, a kind of uh, illustrating this seeker looking up to God, and is set over the text of "My God, I love Thee with all my heart; my life clings to Thee." It's almost like illustrating, within ascending motion, that the seeker is looking up to the high ideals of God. So, like, God, I can't really do this in response to the first commandment here. Okay, and the music you would hear something like um won't be able to hear in this one because going to be voiced differently things will be placed in different octaves key again is listen to the bass notes sound more like this the bass note moving and of course this is always a long range hearing so it's a little bit tricky if you just if you listen to the piece itself in this entirety um... it's the academic musicians that are really trained to hear things like this and which makes us so abnormal <laughs> alright so um let's hear how how it's being played in the middle of this the section Six c major and then end of the section Here e minor okay so main thing here is to get the in, um, the seeker looking up to the high ideals of God the, that's the main thing I think Parker wants to paint here okay now onwards and forwards to the second seekers couplet. Which is the seeker's response to the second commandment? Now, with the understanding of the misunderstanding of the second commandment, can be fulfilled with a Samaritan's heart. The seeker beseecheth the Lord to bestow unto him the heart of the good Samaritan. Now, reflecting on this misconceived silver lining, the music moves, actually starts in the key of E minor. And moves and ends in G major so starts in something darker and ends with a again like a silver lining so yes there's hope I just pray that God gave me give me a, a Samaritan's heart and I will be able to fulfill this uh, commandment okay we're gonna hear this uh, change right here just so minor sad end so it sounds happy in this end because there's a sort of a glimmer of hope that yes probably I can probably keep this one just like the teacher of the law here right so Bach really trying to illustrate how he understood um, the lectionary of that day. Remember, it's the context here. The lectionary is on the Good Samaritan passage. Alright? Now, if the recitative is the seeker's response to the second commandment, the aria is then his meditation and realization of the truth. Pure incompleteness, the power lacking in me. The music... So organizing is almost a capo aria form, if you're interested in that. Almost like a sandwich, with which the first and last section are identical, and there's this middle section that is contrasting. More or less in the key of D minor, which pretty much is picking up from where we left off in the first commandment in terms of the cantata's overall motion. Okay, We can just listen to the opening. Back to um, minor key sounding stuff. Okay. Hence, the aria really portrays the listener's realization of the impossibility of even fulfilling the second commandment. Alright, so let's move to the last um, fi- final chorale right here. It's perhaps the most in- imperfect final chorale. In all of Box cantata, and I know there are like 300, over 300 of them, and I literally have not listened to all of it. And uh, a lack of citation, I got this from a Box scholar again. And, um, good that there's no chastising on Sunday. I will be so dinged for plagiarizing right here.
2: Huh?
0: Okay. The chorale, again, is the collective seeker or the congregation's response to commandments and the response is a humble supplication unto the lord for strength to be fruitful to do good works and to love see the imperfection here is in the music's so mainly as a product of tonal ambiguity i.e. not knowing really really not clear about what key you're in hence really it really portrays the imperfection of how the of the flesh, and how we only have the option to be humble before God. Part of this tonal ambiguity is really due to how the chorale tune doesn't fit nicely into our major and minor system. It doesn't, because chorale tunes are composed um, mostly by Martin Luther, which is before um, all this tonality kind of thing, this kind of thing uh, really gets uh, solidified, cemented in the common practice. So um, Bach is pretty much working with things that are a couple centuries old. Okay, um, And th- those who knows about know about the modal system, this chorale is actually in a Phrygian, which resembles more of the D minor key. So conventionally composers will work this tune, this chorale, in the key of D minor And it's really a test for creativity Because it's like D minor, but it's not really So you have to play around with things a little Um, Bach is certainly uh, conscious of this more intuitive and common approach He even marks the um, key signature here This B, this little B sign there's only one B, so there's only one flat minor key, it's key of D minor. Stephen even marks it in the key of D minor. Okay? So he's actually very cautious of the uh, conscious of this. And he we can actually find a D minor setting for this exact tune in his chorale collection. So he has done it in D before. Probably for another occasion. But for this cantata, guess what? He does not set it in D. He actually said it in G minor. So it's almost like Bach intentionally putting up a sign that says D minor, but gives you G minor. What does it sound like? It sounds like a very good politician. Okay. Now, if you know the chorale tune as well as the cradle, Lutherans were singing, singing this since their birth. And it's... As sensitive to key centers as the uh, educated listener back in the 18th century, you would notice that the cantata will end in a very interesting way. Once you identify the Bach set this final chorale in the key of G minor. Why? Because the chorale ends. The note A, And in the note in the key of G minor, you can never, ever, ever um, get a good perfect authenticators remember authenticators the period from music that ends with the note a that that can never happen that will just never happen um, and I can probably demonstrate this okay I'll probably demonstrate this I'll cheat here so illustrate what I actually mean so I'm gonna bang in your head the key of D minor. minor Ending right, sort of closes itself off, right? Now, this is how Bach did it in the in that we found in the um, chorale collection and most what other what other composers would likely do, this kind of thing. But in this cantata, Bach does this. and testify what's going to happen, you're very good. <laughs> um, it's because you want this. Right? So, by setting this in the key of G minor, what Bach have to know that it will leave this cliffhanger incomplete I, it just doesn't end the right feeling and that's intentional that's why he said it all in the of G minor, he wants that feeling okay, and we can hear the recording first of all, a media recording of how Bach did it in D minor like a conventional way Again, it's an okay ending, right? Closes itself off, and this is the cantata. And in effect, it really leaves the cantata hanging, incomplete in the middle of nowhere. I mean, this is the end of the cantata, the end of the entire piece. It's a very, it really leaving the congregation with a sense of incompleteness, and really an acknowledged prop, prop trying to use this allegory to acknowledge hum, the human inability to fulfill God's commandment unaided, an allegory for. Ined- of the inevitability of human weakness. Realize I've gone through a lot of things right here and it's 10 o'clock, so I just want to summarize these pieces together, summarize it, okay? And we'll have time to open up the floor. So in summary, then the um, this overall design of the um, cantata 77 can be said to delineate a shift from major to minor as well as a progression towards the flat key from the first to the last movement so you can see that marked in yellow the opening chorus initiates this flat word and minor word movement and you can see there's a local ascending motion the third movement representing the seeker looking up towards um, the eternal love of God you can see that in green and there's also a shift to a G major in the fourth movement that depicts that there's a glimmer of hope while the fifth movement resumes the progression that the first, that the opening chorus started when, um, in realization that the answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life, the answer to that is, it is impossible for me. Hence, leading us to a final chorus that brings us to the goal of this flat word and minor words progression um, to the key of G minor, when the seeker understands that what is impossible with men is possible with God, the entire cantata describes a descent motion from major to minor, from sharp to flat, articulating a motion from the spirit of God and the perfection of the major triad, major triad, um, where am I? Major triad um, to that of neighbor and minor triad as the symbol of Human imperfection and incompleteness. So, liturgically, upon hearing the reading of the laws, our response should be Curie eleison, Christe eleison, Curie eleison. Lord have mercy upon us, Christ have mercy upon us, Lord have mercy upon us. Amen.
1: Musical word octave, is that from the Latin word eight?
2: Because I think of octave, is that what octave means? Eight notes, Yeah. Yes?
4: This is fascinating, uh, Jason, because um, what I was hearing. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, this, yep. it's very subjective, yep. very subjective.
2: Yep. definitely
0: a
4: lot of momentum and confidence in that first bit mm-hmm. that you played and then the, the first mm-hmm. rest of the team was more meditative mm-hmm. it's like somebody mm-hmm. saying oh, okay how am I going to do this <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> how am I really going to love my right. neighbor this way mm-hmm. and then toward the end and maybe this is your incomplete bit mm-hmm. um, a sense of humility that this is not going
0: to
2: be
4: possible. Mm-hmm. And only God can help mm-hmm. this happen. Mm-hmm. I, is that what I'm
0: supposed to hear? <laughs> More or less, um, first movements you're supposed to hear. Well, not supp- supposed to hear it is a very hard thing because there's always different audiences. Um, even as a uh, literal um, writer, right? Even as a writer, never expect the um, the audience to capture everything that the poet wants to put in poetry. Never Shakespeare, I don't think, ever uh, expects his audience to capture every single allegory he puts in his play. Mm-hmm. Um, our best guess is Bach wants you to hear how the center shifts and down spiral in terms of, um, in terms of key. But if you can hear this good momentum and then the slowing down and then uh, um, the final chorale being so open and so bizarre uh, still is telling uh, you that it is impossible to do that is a good reading as well. I mean, that, that, is, that is a good reading. I mean, at the same time we also understand that um, almost like a research theorist, this is our best guess at what Bach wants wants to um, mm-hmm. hold into his music based on the evidence we have, right?
4: But we play these things nowadays it's mm-hmm. a piece, you know, do mm-hmm. But Bach didn't do it that way. No, it was,
0: definitely it, it not.
4: Integrated into the whole service. Yes. Yeah, definitely. The reading was the Good Samaritan. Yeah. These kids all knew the tune. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so it would have, I would think, a lot of impact mm-hmm. there.
0: Yeah. Definitely, it's, um, yeah, definitely though, these are music composed for, surf, um, for Sunday services. Uh, for a regular Sunday service, actually. it's not really meant to be concert piece. Bach actually never had a full choir when performing these uh, cantatas, and there's been arguments saying cantatas um, are written for one force per part because he knows he will not have the full force uh, week by week. It's only on the uh, passions and, um, like, the um, passion oratorials and stuff that he would expect to have full forces. basically on a feast day. On regular Sundays, one force per part is the argument. Yeah?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, in absence mm-hmm. of hands popping up, mm-hmm. I'm going to... Uh, mm-hmm a question that I hope is not too murky Uh, it's a little complicated and it's sort of philosophical Um, I think you're I think you're starting from what I would call uh, a phenomenology a structure of the physics of human perception that is common to every human organism in terms of perceiving these sounds and how they uh, how they act Uh, that's one element of it another element is the kind of education that you have more of than most of us in this audience in terms of the tradition the conventions that are made use of the expectations, the mm-hmm. history, a, a kind of a context for understanding any particular piece mm-hmm. of music, mm-hmm. uh, and then someone who, like me, has almost no musical training, mm-hmm. could come into this and uh, with a a personality and a subjectivity. Mm-hmm which Mm -hmm. bypasses all of this convention and uh, maybe even Mm -hmm. overturns the normal human perception Mm -hmm. and just introduces a a kind of subjectivity that would Mm -hmm. upset the apple cart. Mm -hmm. So where I'm going with this question is in what you're presenting, how much how much weight do you put on this natural human perception? And how much weight do you put on this <laughs> acquaintance with how music works? Because mm-hmm. my sense is that mm-hmm. you are leaning, you, you, you're, you're somewhere in between the two, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure how much you're allowing for uh, naive, untrained
0: subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a hard one. I know. Well, I mean, that's that's a hard one. That's That's a hard one in terms terms of. (laughs) That's a hard (laughs) one in terms of. It's a hard one to pinpoint. Actually, it's so many uh, levels. Even at the pure academic level, I mean, we're talking about how we hear things, how we used to hear things two centuries ago. Versus how we hear things now. And the one thing that I point out too, this is out of tune. And we don't feel it. We don't feel the keyboard being out of tune. We'll never feel that. We're so used to being things tuned this way. and That immediately is something different from how we perceive music, how how we naturally perceive music, and from how they naturally perceive music at that context two centuries ago. Right? And then there's always context, right? If you move to Italy, actually, is even this. Even moving to Italy, we stay saying in the continental Europe, it's a different conventions, different set of um, traditions, a so set of conventions, separate set of how people perceive music, even the untrained. Because, I mean, you can be untrained, but you have heard music, right? right? We have heard music, we have sung some tunes, we have heard the radio. Back in the day, they must have attended um, Sunday service. They hear music every Sunday. Every Sunday. Um, and what we hear shapes our perception at the same time. So it's really almost like catch-22. So is it even possible to go in and say, uh, I'm untrained and I have um, a fresh perception. I doubt it because your perception is shaped by... Mm-hmm. How, how, where you are. If you are in that 18th century German in that um, in St. Thomas Church St. Uh, Thomas Church you'll be so attuned to how Bach does things. And that would be an extremely different perception from us. I mean, I myself I mean, I'm trained and yet I have to Really force myself to hear these the changes I was uh, talking about in order to pick it up from the from the recording. Okay, I won't be able to pick up on the keyboard because it's out of tune. So right? if
3: I had uh, raised my child on mm. nothing but mm. heavy metal, they might not be able to hear any of what you're uh, <laughs> what you're talking about.
0: He- heavy metal is a branch of Western music, right? Heavy metal is a branch of western music It's based on heavy... it's based on um, western meter uh, Rhythmic uh, rhythm, rhythmic meter okay. um, I mean, it's expressed in different way Different instrument, different acoustic arena But it's still based on these twelve, um, 12 notes
3: that
0: we established Okay, so I would've the given them system. a good basis right? <laughs> Now, this, but, is, this is a thought experiment. I mean, by the way, <laughs> this is like okay, but they only have that understanding that had heavy metal music that we gave it. We that would only have that context that we established. Now, to pick up more, more in depth as to what Bach was doing, that is a completely dif- um, different context at all. Yes, that kid, a child on heavy metal music. We'll know the difference between this and this, definitely, right? But, will they be able to understand the change, the stark change from here, or would they be able to pick up, oh, it moved a notch to the flat side, therefore it has that effect? No, I doubt it.
1: This is
3: very. i um, will okay. oh, okay. oh, sorry. First first questioner, and then we'll oh, come to you, Kurt. I just to wanted
4: her. to say thank you so much because mm-hmm. I know how much mm-hmm. reading and study this takes, and you've given mm-hmm. us an excellent mm-hmm. presentation, so thank
1: you. Thank you. Kurt? Well, this is very rich, Jason. Welcome back. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if the rich young yeah. ruler was living today and said, mm-hmm. so What must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> I would suggest. Help Jason out so he can finish his uh university
4: education and <laughs> kind faster. Of
0: I would much rather him say cure elect <laughs> and Christ Elaison.
4: Oh,
1: I was a c I was a cradle Lutheran and, and uh I was uh lazy and uh naive as a uh, music student
2: this is just wonderful. <laughs>
0: Actually, I want to hear from Dr. Packer if I get right, right. (laughs) (laughs) I just started.
1: (laughs) I have written to contribute, I'm afraid. I'm (laughs) very grateful for what you presented. But uh, to me, I must confess, a lot lot of it was new thinking because uh, the world of... how do I say it, the, 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 musical, the world of musical language which I inhabit really started with um, Haydn. Uh, I don't know how technically to describe it, but Haydn and Mozart and <laughs> Beethoven and Brahms, they are all talking a language which I think I understand a bit, but it's different from Bach's language. (laughs) I've only gone a little way into Bach. I've listened to the B minor mass and I expect all the rest of us have. And the the B minor mass to my mind this is just a picture Uh, it's not an academic statement but uh, it to my mind operates as a bridge Mm -hmm. between what Mm -hmm. I know that Bach was doing but Mm -hmm. find it hard Mm -hmm. actually to discern when I listen to his notes Mm -hmm. and what I know that uh, Haydn Mm -hmm. and the rest of those guys uh, were doing where not only can I follow the notes but I can recognize a language with moods Mm -hmm. and a sequence Mm -hmm. of moods achieved Mm by uh, different tonal devices in the... I'm not not Mm -hmm. the language for this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I said in in the work. And um, well, that's where I am. You asked me mm. to say something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, something uh,
0: if, I, if I get Tom oh, right, right?
1: <laughs> to say where I am. It may be that others are in places similar to where I mm. am. Mm. Uh, and um, it may be that I'm out on my own. Mm. Jason,
4: yeah, yeah. Dr. Pecker speaks jazz. Yeah. Mm. Maybe on I'll do that Maybe
2: will
3: We'll be uh, we'll clearing into the questions, and uh, once
2: again, thank Jason for a very thought-provoking pre- presentation.